0: Um, look on the screen above me and tell me how many, of you, how many of you recognize that? How many of you recognize that picture? Anybody recognize what that picture's from? Come on, where, where's all the teenagers? Anybody, come on, lift your hand. Anybody recognize what that picture's from? Some of you, Not. come on. It's okay, MCs. I know you do. Don't look at me like that. How many of you recognize what that is? Yeah, yeah it's growing, it's growing. Okay, for those of you who don't know, I'm about to br- bring you into 21st century teenage life. This is characters from Fortnite. How many of you know what Fortnite is? Come on, lift your Okay, show me if you don't know what Fortnite is. Raise your hand if you don't know. Oh, wow. Okay. All right, well, we're about to have a conversation. So Fortnite is, a, um, it's spelled, we would say it's spelled wrong, fort Fort-N-I-T-E. Fortnite is a, a period of two weeks. This is what the name means. And the title also um, tells us that part of the strategy of the game is building forts. So you, you, you're this, it's this um, live game where you're playing online and you're fighting other people and you're building a fort and you're trying to build a higher fort so you can get an advantage over your opponent. And, uh, and it also stands for the storm clouds. How many of you know that play that if you don't get out of the way, it's going to you know, suck all your life out? So you got to run away right from the storm clouds. Now, when Epic Games introduced uh, Fortnite Battle Royale game mode, they did something that hadn't been done quite like they did it before, and they revolutionized gaming. They made it free. And, you know, used to you'd pay $60, $70, $80 to play a game. They had a high-quality game accessible to anyone with Internet access, and um, they made it free. And in the first two weeks, 10 million people played. So I don't know where you all been that never heard of it. <laughs> 10 million people in the first two weeks played the game. Now, uh, that changed gaming forever, by the way. We now have professional video game players. Let me explain that. We have people whose job, they are paid to play video games. She'd be like, where was that at when I was a kid? You know what I'm saying? I I would have signed up for that. Um, The most famous guy, his name is Ninja, and he plays for hours every day and he live streams himself. I know you think nobody would watch this, but wait. He live, live streams himself playing Fortnite Because he's so good at it, other people can watch him play and learn how to play faster. And so he set up an account where people, when they watch him play, they can tip him. You think, how can that be a full time job? Well, he makes $500,000 a month. You tell me how it can be a job. (laughs) You don't need too many months of that, and you're ready to retire. You're good. So, this game has exploded. Fortnite made $300 million in April of 2018. That was a year ago. The company is now valued, the Epic Games, the company that made Fortnite, is now valued at $15 billion. $15 billion billion dollars the guy who owns epic games last year i think made seven billion dollars now i don't think the world has ever seen a video game like this spread like this it had 10 million players in the first two weeks and now it has 250 million players That's about two-thirds of the population, a little over two-thirds of the population of America. That's the quantity you're talking about. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this. It's an understatement to say that Fortnite has gone viral. So what does it mean for something to go viral? Things go viral when they spread fast and when they spread far. That's the definition that I made up. Of when something goes viral. Because I'm so tech savvy. Everybody would know that knows me. Fast and far. That's why we called this series that we're going to be in this summer viral. Because through the book of Acts, we see that the good news about Jesus and the, and the church itself spread fast and it spread far. So uh, every summer, we do a book study. We study a book of the Bible. Last summer, we started on the book of Acts. It's a long book. We couldn't finish it in one summer. We did chapter 1 through chapter 12. Today, we're going to pick up on chapter 13 and then study till about chapter maybe 19 or 20 to the end of the, to the, end of the summer. Now, before we get there, I want to give you just a little bit of background. Acts is the history um, of the first 30 years of the church. So the whole book of Acts encompasses about 30 years and not just any 30 years the first 30 years of the church in those 30 years the church spread from a small group of 120 people to thousands of people Uh, the first little group 120 was in jerusalem it spread from that one city of 120 people to thousands of people in 32 countries and 54 cities and nine islands in 30 years That's with no internet, with no cell phone, with no print media, with no TV, with no cars, with no trains, with no planes. That is absolute lightning speed in the first century. We could easily say that the good news about Jesus went viral. It spread far and it spread fast into a world who had never heard of him. It's not like they had some uh, context to draw from. I'd never heard of him. Now we've been reading the book of Acts looking at this viral journey that the Christians went on. Today we're going to begin at chapter 13, and what I'm going to talk to you about is is, may sound a little bit strange. We're going to talk about a biblical worldview. What is a biblical worldview? It is seeing the world through the eyes of the Bible or seeing the world the way God sees the world. And one of the things I'm going to say to you is one of the great causes of, that, that drove the church to go viral to spread the gospel fast and far was that those first Christians had a biblical worldview. They saw the world the way that God sees the world. Now, it may, it may sound uh, strange this morning when we talk about it because as the generations go by in America, the biblical worldview is shrinking Let me give you the latest uh, on that. Only 4% of Generation Z has a biblical worldview. So if you're 19 years old or under, somewhere about there, 4% of your generation has a biblical worldview. Now, if you go to millennials, it's a little higher. If you go to my generation, Gen X, it's a little higher. But, But the further we go in American life, the more it moves down. So I just wanted to say that because some of the things I'm going to say to you from Acts chapter 13, maybe you've never heard anyone say. Because because I'm going to do my very best to show you from the Bible what a biblical worldview looks like. One of the reasons we do a book study every summer is because we're trying to raise the value of the Bible and, and we're trying to equip Kingwood Church to have a biblical worldview. So that's, that's one of the reasons we do the whole series to start with. It's also one of the reasons that the good news about Jesus spread across the world like fire because they had a biblical worldview. Now look at Acts chapter 13, verse 1. We're, we're going we're to start there. We won't finish the whole section, but I'll narrow in on a few verses so we can get an idea of what's happening. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Now, c- a couple things here. Um, there were five leaders of the church. It was a, a leadership team that was diverse. If you remember any of our study from Acts 1 through 12, you, you will know that the church had not done any missionary work so far. They had, they had reached out to the Jews, their own kind, but they had not really reached out. These people were in Antioch, which is not you know, near Jerusalem, but they're in Antioch because the persecution got so hot in Jerusalem, that they ran for their lives. So they weren't going on a missionary journey. They weren't going to plant churches. They weren't going to reach people. They were running for their life. And just so happens a small group of Christians end up in Antioch together. And so they say, we're the only Christians we know, so let's meet. Paul and Barnabas hear about it. They go up to Antioch to be with them. So that's the context of what's going on. You have these five leaders all meeting together. Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, listen to this, the Holy Spirit said. That's very important. I find that I hear what the Holy Spirit says better when I'm worshiping and praying and fasting. It's why we do a fast once a year at Kingwood. I find that the noise and the clutter and the distraction of this world drowns out the Holy Spirit's voice to my soul. It's important for us to know that that these five leaders didn't say, hey, what's next? What's our next step? What's the next iteration? What's the next move? What's our next strategy? What's our next plan? What's the thing that we're supposed to do now that we're in Antioch? They weren't asking any of those questions. They were in prayer, worshiping, and fasting. And so it's very important for us to know this morning that what I'm about to say to you was not any of their idea. It was the Holy Spirit's idea. While they were just worshiping and praying and seeking God, the Holy Spirit said. Now, the other question is, how did that sound? What do you mean he said? Did he write it on the wall? Did he send a memo? How did he say? I don't know. I know this. Everybody who says God said doesn't always mean God said. Because sometimes people say God said and they said. Right? But the Bible says that the Holy Spirit said. So we know, we know what's going on here. Now watch. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. They're worshiping and fasting and, and, and the Holy Spirit said this. It's God's idea. This might seem like a small moment, but it is an enormous moment. If you understand this moment, you will understand the rest of the book of Acts. Because the pivot is in this moment. Outside of the death and resurrection of Jesus, I think this is probably the biggest moment in the entire New Testament. It's huge. It's bigger than Fortnite. It's bigger than the beginning of Apple or the start of Facebook. It's bigger than the founding of America. This is the beginning of the church's effort to take the good news about Jesus to the whole world so let me show it to you on a map for a minute I brought a map this morning so you could see if you look inside this little blue circle right here in the corner that's about how far there's Jerusalem in the little red circle so that's where that's where Jesus Jesus died he rose from the dead the Holy Spirit's poured out and the church begins to grow but the church is growing by reaching Jews their own kind And then it spreads to Samaria and Judea. But most of what has happened in the church so far has happened in this blue circle. Except for the persecution got so hot that some people started to run for their life outside the blue circle. And when they did, they coincidentally took Christianity with them. But the church had never intentionally taken Christianity with them. Until here. Until the Holy Spirit said And when the Holy Spirit said, I want you, you, if you can see this big, large green circle, that's the rest of the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit said, send them. And when the church responded, the, the gospel exploded. It went viral all over the world. This call is the reason that we have churches all over the world today. This call is the reason that Susan is in Japan. This call is the reason that you and I even have a church to gather with in America today. Like, this is huge. All right, Acts 13 6. Now, Paul, Paul and, Paul and uh, uh, Barnabas go out. They listen to the Holy Spirit and they obey. What happens? What's the very first thing that happens? Verse 6, they traveled through the whole island, They're on an island. Remember I said the gospel spread to nine islands? Here's one of the islands. Until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. It just sounds like we're in for trouble with a guy named Bar-Jesus. I don't know why. There's Jesus and there's Bar-Jesus. And Bar-Jesus doesn't sound good. Who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, some say an understanding man, although he's he's open to hear, watch this, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. Like he had heard a little bit, he he wanted to know what is this about. Watch, verse 8. But Eli Manning, the sorcerer, I'm sorry, Elamus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, same guy, not a different guy, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Paul and Barnabas went because the Holy Spirit said. And now you have a sorcerer who is trying to oppose and undermine and take the governor of this island and turn him away from Christianity. He is in direct opposition to the work and the plan of God. Isn't it interesting that for the first time the church is led by the Holy Spirit to share Jesus' love with the whole world, they barely get to their first stop, take one foot off the boat, and they run directly into opposition. That's why I asked Susan this morning, what's the greatest hindrance to the gospel in Japan? Because I know there is. Look, this is the best news the world has ever heard. That Jesus died and came back from the dead and that God loves you and there's a way to heaven. This is the best news. You would think they would organize a parade and welcome them off the boat into their city to talk about it. You would think it'd be like the NFL draft. People would come from all over to party and, you know, Celebrate. If not that, you would at least think that the people on the island would hear them out before they begin to undermine them. But none of that happened. When you follow the Holy Spirit's guidance in your life to share Jesus, you are going to face opposition. I, I think of my friend who I met many years ago on a mission trip in Buenos Aires, Argentina, Alberto Rey. Alberto Rey was a young pastor, 29 years old, and, and uh, when he, he had a vision in his heart to reach his community, and nobody cared. Nobody cared when he was just a, just a kid that sat on the pew. Nobody cared when he was just a kid that went to church. Nobody cared. But when he set his mind and heart to follow the Holy Spirit to reach his community, he began to face opposition like you wouldn't believe. He finally became a pastor. He had eight people in the church. He began to share his vision to reach his community. Four of them got mad and quit. He said four people. But he would go out into the parks. He would go out in the streets. He would go out and witness to people and share with people and share God's love. And the church just began to grow. And as it began to grow, the gangs in the community didn't want the church to grow. They didn't care as long as the church wasn't growing. When it started growing, then they would start to throw animal blood on the front door of the church and... uh, 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 tear the building down and throw rocks at it and throw sticks at it and uh, slaughter animals and throw the blood of animals on the building to try to harass them and oppose them and say, stop doing the work you're doing. And then one one trip we were there, a witch had moved in next door and she would try to cast spells and stuff on the church. What what am I saying to you? (laughs) You're scared to go to church now. (laughs) What should we do? Well, I, I don't think that most of the opposition that we face in America looks anything like that. But I think it's just as deadly. I think it's just as harmful. What does opposition look like for us? Here's the, here it is distraction. The greatest threat to your faith is distraction. The greatest threat. There are forces at work to distract our attention from Jesus' work on earth. And these forces are motivated, as I'm going to show you, by self-interest. And some of these forces come from darkness. And some of these forces come from culture. But the result is the same distraction. So what might these distractions look like in America... What might they look like if we're going to hear the Holy Spirit say, go, and we're going to go, what might we need to be on the lookout for so that we're not pulled off the message that God gave us? Well, let me give you a few. Number one, people. There are people who do not want you to live for God. And and you know why? Because it makes them uncomfortable. They're afraid it's going to change something about their life, and they don't want to change. And they're not thinking about you, they're thinking about themselves, and and they will hurt your faith trying to protect themselves. They might make fun of you. They they might say, you don't really believe all that, do you? I mean, that's fairy tales. Now we have science, and we have technology, and we have education, and we've outgrown all that archaic stuff. And they might might sort of uh, jab at you a little bit. You don't need to read your Bible. Look, I don't need all that. I just try to do what's right. I don't need all that religion. Just, just skip church and hang out with me. You know, just this once. Now, now that you're saved, now that you're a Christian, does that mean we can't party anymore? Does that mean we can't watch the same movies? Are you going to still gossip with me? Are we still going to do drugs together? Now that you got religion, can we still sleep together? See, they don't care about you. They just want to know what this means for them. And they are people who will oppose God's work in your life because they don't want to lose something. This is exactly who the sorcerer Bar-Jesus was. Bar-Jesus was part of the governor's leadership team on the island. And he was afraid that if the governor had a new faith, then he would kick him off the leadership team because he would recognize him as a false prophet and a sorcerer, what the Bible says he was. And so he felt threatened. He felt his status and his place was threatened, so he began to oppose Christianity. Look, some of you have friends in your life that are bar Jesus. Some of you have bar Jesus in your family, and they're trying to turn you away from faith. I remember when I was young in faith, I'd only been a believer about a year and a half, and man, my, it changed everything about my life. And a very important person in my life questioned me one time and said, hey, you know, um, you can get too much of anything. And this person who loved me and only meant well said, don't you think you go to church a little too much? And in that moment I realized I can't listen to your advice anymore. I can't trust your advice because you're actually now opposing the faith and relationship that God has given me that's allowed me to find forgiveness and healing and a future and hope. The greatest threat to your faith is distraction. And people will sometimes distract you. Number two, priorities. God has an order that he's given us to live in and many times he'll say, hey, do this first. Before you do that, do this. Matthew six thirty-three. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So throughout Scripture, God tells us to seek Him first, put uh, to give to God first, to put reconciliation first, to love God first, to put others first. We have, a, and in our culture, we have constant distractions coming at, a, at us all the time, trying to get us not to put God first. So let me give you a very practical example, okay, in terms of priorities. Now, now like I said, some of this is going to st- sound strange. Because what I'm trying to communicate to you this morning is a biblical worldview. And so uh, there used to be a time in, in, our, cult, in our country that uh, you, we see it in church attendance, right? A- in the church world, there's a giant conversation going on right now. Uh, uh, like, how many times do people go to church a week? And, and, and how low is it going to go before even committed Christians stop? And so it used to be you know, three to four times a month, now it's two to three times a month. I had a friend that told me in the New England area, once every six weeks is the, is the regular church attendance they get uh, among, among the believers there. And so there are so many competing priorities for God's work and our faith. What I'm just asking you is, do you think that with those priorities, the gospel could go far and fast? That's what I'm saying. So a few years ago, I I was uh, scrolling on Facebook and I saw a friend of ours who had competed in a softball tournament and on on Easter Sunday, (laughs) had won a trophy and it had the picture of the team on the beach. They had won the softball tournament on Easter Sunday. And I thought, my Lord, is there there not one day left that's sacred? And and, and the answer is no, no, there's not. About five years ago, I was uh, on Sunday morning. I walk and pray before church, and I was walking in my neighborhood, and uh, I never see anybody. I can just tell you, I can tell you when people are asleep. 6:30 on Sunday morning, nobody's up. Trust me, it's nobody. Like so, I'm walking, and I heard somebody call my name, and it just shook me because I thought I've, I've walked this hundreds of times. I never met a human. You know, I never saw a person. I've seen some deer, never seen any people. And this kid goes, "Hey, hey, Coach Jay, I've done I've done a lot of coaching. I've been involved in sports one." He goes, "Hey, Coach Jay." I said, "Hey, man." I looked over and said, where where are you headed? He said, going to a baseball tournament. 6.30, and there he is dressed in his little, 6.30 on Sunday morning? You going to a baseball tournament? (laughs) Wow. So just so you think I'm not picking on, you know, (laughs) T-ball, right? Because they look so cute in the little outfits. You know, and they play bulldozers in the infield when they're supposed to be catching the ball. I'm not picking on t-ball. I love sports. My family's done sports all our life. But just so you know, I'm not picking on it. Um, The leader of our fellowship, of our denomination, Doug Clay, um, recently at a conference was speaking, and he shared the top ten challenges facing the church in America. Do do you know what he said? I won't give you all ten. Here's what he said one of them was. Travel sports clubs. Because they distract people from the life of the church and the mission of God in such large chunks of time. It, 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 it takes away. So the question is, is it okay for Christians to treat Sunday like the second Saturday? Now, before you feel the walls of guilt and legalism and condemnation closing in, Please don't misunderstand my point. The question is not, how many rules do I have to follow to be a good Christian? That's not what I'm asking. The question is, what kind of life do we have to live in order for the good news of Jesus to go viral? That's the question. It's not happening at the, at the ball stadium. The sports club isn't going to organize a mission to take the gospel to the whole world. And they shouldn't, because Jesus only gave, the Holy Spirit said, Jesus only gave that commission to one group of people, and it's the church, and one of the ways we get distracted from Jesus' mission is we have so many priorities that compete for our time and our attention. I actually posted an article on my Facebook page this morning. I just happened to read this week. I never seen it, never heard of the guy that wrote it, but it's a great article. I'll give you the title if you want to go to my Facebook page and read it later, you can. It said, here's the title. When church is optional, you set your kids up to fail. So I just encourage you to read that. The greatest threat to our faith is distraction and other priorities to faith. Number three, plans. James chapter 3, 13 through 15. Now, listen, you who say tomorrow, today, we'll go to this city or that city, spend a year, carry on business, make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, look, the point of this whole scripture is not planning is evil. Planning's not evil, and planning's not against the Holy Spirit. That's, that's hogwash. Here's the point. When we plan, when we make plans like we're the center, then, then, that's, then that's counterproductive to the gospel. When we make plans like God's the center, now we have a biblical worldview. So, so I, I'll give you kind of a silly example. Uh, In other words, instead of saying, instead of starting with the question, what do I want to do, starting with the question, what does God want me to do? One is a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview, one is a humanistic worldview. So uh, I'll give you a, a kind of goofy example. I had a buddy in college that looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger, I mean literally. Like he wasn't that as big, but compared to me, he might as well have been. He was big. And he had the same, I mean he looked like him in the face. Randy, and I went and hung out at Clearwater Beach with Randy one day. I was kind of scared because he's quiet. I didn't know much about him, but I went and hung out. And he ended up being an awesome guy. But I remember we went to this ice cream shop after going to the beach, and he, just, he, just, he was just hungry. This will sound legalistic and petty, but in the moment it did something to me. He was hungry for God and hungry to live his life the way God wanted him to live his life. And he looked at me and said, you know, I just want to make sure that I've done everything I can do with the life that God's given me to make a difference. So he said, I ask questions like, you know, he had a, a soda in his hand. He goes, I, like, did I really need like an 88-ounce? Remember, anybody remember the Big Gulp? I don't know why they thought you needed four gallons in one cup. But he goes, did I really need to do that, or should I like have bought a cheaper one, and that's, that's money I could have given to something? And then he got an ice cream cone, and I still remember it was weird because it's the first person I didn't even know there was a pistachio ice cream. That made no sense to me. It was green, didn't look like anything anybody would want to eat, you know. And he got it, and he said, "Like, I wonder, should I have gotten one scoop? I just wanted, I want to live my life for God in every way I can, and I want to make sure that I'm that I'm being a good steward of everything I have." And it was such a uh, I'd never heard anybody in my life talk about that things like that in any way. And all I could think about on the way home was that ice cream cone. (laughs) I was thinking, that ice cream cone's killing me. Do I just rush through my life and do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it? Or do I have some responsibility to God for the decisions I make and where I invest my life? And I know it sounds petty and small, but it challenged me. And the point is not that God's against planning. The point is, are the dreams that are in your heart, God's dreams or your dreams? That's the point. Here's the last one. Prosperity. History tells us when we prosper, we don't spend our prosperity on God's plans. We spend it on our own plans. My my, um, proof of that is, I don't know, like the whole Old Testament. (laughs) Because in the Old Testament, you'll have a king that'll... You know, say the right things, and people will repent, and they'll come back to God. And when they come back to God, they start to get healthy, and they start to get whole. Their marriages start to be blessed, their finances start to be blessed, and then they start to prosper. And then that prosperity leads them away from God, and they and rinse and repeat, and they do it over and over and over and over. Matthew nineteen twenty three. Then Jesus said to his disciples, "Truly, I tell you, it's hard for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of heaven." Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? Why? Because prosperity is a distraction. Now, now before you're tempted to say, Yes, I'm so glad that the Bible gets after all those evil rich people, let me just warn you, we're them from a global and a historical perspective and even inside the confines of our own state we are those rich people did you know the wealthiest county in the state of Alabama is Shelby County? the per capita the household income in Shelby County is higher than the 66 other counties wait let me show you how prosperity is a distraction in the wealthiest county in the state of Alabama Shelby County also has the the, um, lowest church attendance in the count in the state of Alabama so let me ask you a question has our prosperity drawn us closer to God or has it drawn us away from God now like I said we want to talk about a biblical worldview today Jesus love went viral through the world because the first Christians would not be distracted. There's an incredible story in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah has this powerful encounter with God and he's overwhelmed with God's presence and then he realizes how much he truly needs God and after that powerful encounter verse 8 happens and I want to read it to you this morning. Listen listen to Isaiah verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? The Holy Spirit said, Then I heard the voice of the Lord, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And he said, Here am I, send me. God is asking Isaiah the question that he's continuing to ask us and that he asked Paul and Barnabas. Who can I count on to not get distracted and carry the mission and the message of Jesus to the whole world? starting with Shelby County. Now, I'm so grateful that we're part of a church that's answering that call. Do you know this year for the first time in our entire history, we we reached our goal of supporting 100 missionaries. And I think that's incredible. This Easter, 20 people prayed to accept Jesus as their Savior. Isn't that great? Last Wednesday night, our teenagers had an outreach. And six young people came and committed their life to Jesus. Last Wednesday. Last week on Mother's Day, we had a few more who came to faith. Our Master's Commission group a week ago was in Dearborn, Michigan on a missions trip helping the missionaries there reach out to the Muslim population. Next month we will send the largest and youngest missions team to Honduras that our church has ever sent in its entire history. I think that's awesome. Two months ago during missions day when uh, Pastor Bill and Mary Strickland were here, we invited Everyone in our church who felt a call to ministry to respond. Do you know on that day, 90 people, not nine, not 19, 90, almost 100 people in our church responded and said, who can you send? Send me. I hear you. I hear the call. I hear the voice of God. There's a growing passion in this church to follow the Holy Spirit into Jesus' mission, and I'm so grateful to be a part of this church at this point in history. Now, why does the the mission of God matter? Because the mission of God's how, how Jesus' love got to me. Who brought Jesus' love to you? somebody somebody who said yes I'll go so I'm grateful and I'm grateful that as a church we're answering that call but I'm also disturbed because Shelby County is the most unchurched county in Alabama I'm also disturbed because as the generations go by in American life America is moving away from Christianity at a viral pace and we desperately need in this day the church to hear the Holy Spirit say don't be distracted now, now's not the time (laughs) focus, focus focus how did Christianity go viral? it fought off all the distractions distraction is the greatest threat to your faith, I guarantee it. Would you stand with me this morning? I I wish I had more time, we're just out of time. Would you stand and just open your heart and close your eyes? I wanna ask our prayer team to come today. Is there something distracting your faith right now? Is there a relationship, or a person, or a circumstance, or a priority, or an opportunity, or a personal dream? Is there something distracting your faith? Is there something distracting you from from hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life say whatever He wants to say? Are you struggling with a biblical worldview? Today, Today, if you just say, you know what? My heart is stirred this morning. And if I'm just going to be honest... Feel, I feel distracted. So many things going on in my life And today I just want to ask for God's help that I wouldn't be distracted that I, in my heart there's a hunger in my heart there's a, a passion. in my heart there's an intention. I want to I want to with all my heart I want to serve God. So many things going on in my life and I want to ask for God's help today. Man, with nobody looking around, would would you just be that honest and say, you know what, that's me. I'm just just struggling today. Would you pray for me? Would you just lift your hand and say, yeah, that's me. Right where you are, just lift your hand up and say, that's me. I'm struggling. Man, I'm living in chaos. I'm living in frustration. I'm living in whatever. Would you just raise your hand and say, that's me. Man, I'm, I'm struggling today. I need God's help. I need God's help to help me, to help me. Just lift your hand up and say, "Pray for me today." Yeah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I see your hand. You put it back down. Thank you so much. And, and you know what? Maybe you're here today, and you say, "If I'm just being honest, I'm overwhelmed. I'm just..." And and you know what? Maybe this sermon was even overwhelming to you. I just want you to know something: God loves you. And His grace is for you. And His heart is for you. And you don't have to have it all right. You don't have to do it all right. You don't have to be a legalist. And you don't have to live in guilt. You don't have to live in shame. You don't have to live in condemnation. But if you just said, if I'm just honest with you today, I'm at a point where I'm just overwhelmed. And I need God's help today. Would you lift your hand and say, pray for me? Just today. I'm Just struggling there. Yeah. Thank you so much. Man, I, I understand. Trust me. I understand. And it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I want to pray for you. And as I begin to pray, if you lifted your hand, I want you to come for prayer today. Just come to one of our prayer team. And I want you just to say, you know, would you pray for me? And just let him minister to you. And the Holy Spirit is going to minister to you this morning. And, and in that moment of prayer, you're so much more likely for God to touch you and speak to you than you are any other time. So as I begin to pray, would you come now? Lord, I thank you today for the grace of Jesus, and I thank you for the the voice of the Holy Spirit drawing us closer and nearer and, and, and deeper to you. Lord, I pray that you would minister by your grace this morning, minister by your presence, fill this place with the presence and the love of God that we might leave here knowing your joy. As the worship team begins to play, I want you to come right now if you need prayer. I want you to come right now. Lord, we thank you today for your grace. Holy Spirit, draw this morning. Everybody who needs to be touched by you.